Greetings and welcome to the Coach's Podcast. This is Jason Smith filling in for Dennis Green. Glad to welcome in Brian Billick. And, Coach, thanks for having me. And, you know, i got to be honest, when I first heard, you know, it's Black Monday, we knew it was going on, and Coach Green wasn't going to be on the show, I'm starting to put two and two together and think, is he in a plane somewhere? Yeah, What's happening? Well, I think we should start that rumor. You okay. know, I, I remember when I, <laughs> excuse me, when I worked for Denny, we were uh, uh, down at the Senior Bowl together. Yeah, Denny and I were having a meal together, and, and we were in Mobile, Alabama, and we look up on the TV, and the news flash is that Denny Green, as we speak, was meeting with Al Davis in Oakland. And Denny looked at me like, <laughs> really? Is that? Jeez. I wish that had told me, you know. So, yeah, it underlines your question, underlines, obviously, the lack of information, the rumors that fly around at this time right now. And that's the difficult thing in this coaching profession. Because keep in mind, you're not just firing head coaches. You're firing staffs and the effect that it has on their lives and their careers it is um, it is a very it should be an exciting time in the national football league because we're now going into the the playoffs and you have the wild card teams there's so much energy in it and it's all real for everybody all everybody's slate is clean that's in the playoffs and we're going forward but you begin it with this pale that's cast around the nfl because either you or someone you know their job is in jeopardy. What, what's it like Black Monday at an NFL facility? Because you hear all the rumors over the weekend, so-and-so is going to be fired on Monday, this is going to happen, so-and-so has been a goner for a few months. What's that day like when you're waiting to figure things out and hearing things? It's very uncomfortable because the, the assistants are there at the crack of dawn because they've, you know, and, and they their doors, they're hiding behind their doors going, what's going on? How do I keep my head down? You know, you walk down the hallways. The secretaries can't look you in the eye. Just, it's a very uncomfortable situation, uh, and it's one you would like, and it would make sense, as we've seen in a couple situations where they've intimated. You know, it's a very long and emotional season. Let's let things calm down a little bit. Let's separate from the emotion of the situation, and then let's evaluate and decide what we want to do going forward. That's what you should do. But the fact of the matter is that's not practical because you can't hang your organization. You can't have those coaches locked up in their rooms. You can't have administrative people not looking each other in the eye for a week or two as you go through that evaluation. And that's why you see so many teams pull the Band-Aid off so quickly saying, this is what we're doing, now we want to move forward. All right, and as far as moving forward, we're going to get to all the big uh, firings from the day on Black Monday. And, and something we knew of, what I said going into the weekend, we knew that Andy Reid was going to be coaching his last game for the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, you saw Donovan McNabb say over the weekend, oh, see, Philadelphia fans are learning now that winning isn't easy. Andy Reid's one of the most respected head coaches, has the be- one of the best resumes you'll find. What's his next step now with, away from the Eagles? Does he take a year off? Does he jump right back in? What do you think he does? Well, you know, and Andy's a friend, and I've talked with Andy at length, and Again, it goes like what I just talked about. In a perfect world, you would give some time to let it settle in. I'm talking about the firing of coaches. Go through the evaluation and make a change. The immediacy of the profession says you can't do that. In a perfect world for Andy personally, for Lovey Smith personally, I would hope for them as, as individuals, boy, take some time. Take the year off. Re-energize your battery. Look at the landscape. Decide what it is you really want to do. You've earned that right in your career, like a Mike Shanahan or like a Jeff Fisher. Uh, But unfortunately, the practicality of it is these jobs are hard to come by. And if there are a number of out there, if there's a job out there that you might covet, those coaches, even though they've got excellent resumes, part of them are going, 
geez, will there be a place for me to land if I decide next year? If there's this many this year, we tend to go in cycles. This is a high year, Mm -hmm. which would indicate next year maybe you're down around the three or four range. And then the next year you go back up to the seven, eight range. And that's just the way it goes in the National Football League. Part of them, from a practical standpoint, would think, boy, I don't know if I want to lay out. Maybe that job that I would really want isn't available next year. Or maybe there's one of these jobs for any number of different reasons. There's speculation that Andy wants the San Diego job. Well, the San Diego job is going to be very attractive. One, it's San Diego. Sure, who would want to live there? of the jobs being available, the question becomes, what's the quarterback situation? And that's one of them, like Chicago with Jay Cutler, depending upon your view of Jay Cutler, that that could be an attractive one because my quarterback's in place. Otherwise, most of these jobs are available. Why? Because your quarterback situation screwed up. So job one is i got to get a quarterback in a year where the free agent market and the drafting market doesn't look particularly good. So, um, but how do you view one of these jobs? If an Andy Reid, because he's from Southern California, because he's going to build a home in Southern California, the proximity to San Diego, maybe personally there's a draw there. Uh, and so yet that all factors in. You know, the funny thing about San Diego is San Diego should be a job that people fall over themselves to go get. You say, there's no more beautiful place in the world. It, it, it's it's made to order for everybody. Free agents should want to go there. But the last few years, we haven't seen them sign big free agents. We've seen every free agent that's come up basically leave, whether it's the, the, the culture there that A.J. Smith and North Turner have had. You have that negativity about San Diego. Does suddenly this turn into the plum job because you think, okay, it's a fresh start? I think it's a plum job. That What you're talking about are organizational uh, and cap questions. You know, some teams will spend in free agency, some won't. And I don't think that makes San Diego an attractive or unattractive job. It's just the approach that they're going to take. Everybody wants to build the same way. Draft well, aug- augment a little bit from free agency. No one wants to overspend in free agency. I remember Art Rooney at one point talking about these exorbitant contracts for these players. Uh, and they said, well, do you mind overpla- you know, overpaying these players? He says, I don't mind overpaying a good player. I just don't want to overpay a bad player. And now that distinction with what's a good and bad player. So those are more um, cap-related organizational things that I don't think that makes San Diego an unattractive place. What makes San Diego attractive to, to a prospective coach would be management has shown some patience, as they did with Norv Turner and A.J. Smith, all but with the firings this week. Uh, so they're willing to go through some of the tough times with you. And that's a good thing because not all clubs are. And you have a quarterback in place. With those two mainstays, that's going to be an attractive job. All right, maybe Lovey Smith could be a candidate for one of these as he was there for nine years in, in Chicago. Andy Reid, we know as long as he was there in Philadelphia. How much weighs into when a coach is let go that just they've been here for so long, the message is stale, fans want to change, people are just looking for change because we feel like we've had this going on for a long time. It's not really getting any better. It's not really getting any worse. We're just kind of going year in and year out. Yeah, there's a shelf life. Bill Walsh. Um, for years said that you can only last a maximum of about 10 years if you're lucky enough to last that long. Um, and there's been that Andy Reid, like you said, 14 years. Jeff Fisher was for a long time in, in uh, Tennessee. But Je- uh, Bill's premise was if you're lucky enough to last that long, it means you were pretty good early. Otherwise, you're gone in year three <laughs> or four. Or in this year, in this game in the NFL now, it's maybe year one or two, you're gone. But if you're good enough to last three or four years, it means because you've been good. But you're eventually going to dip. Bill Cowher was in, out of the playoffs in year seven, eight, nine, and that would have been the NFL parlances. The NFL today may very well been no, this guy's got to go, um, but they stuck with him and they were rewarded with the Super Bowl championship. Uh, Andy Reid had some dips in there. Jeff Fisher 
had some dips in his career, but the organization stuck with him and were rewarded to a degree, but eventually got to the point that said, nope, we just need to make a change. In my circumstance, we were 13-3 and the year before I got fired. We then came back and went 5-11 and after losing our starting quarterback, three-fifths of our offensive line, Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, and most our defense. But the, and, and when you're going through it, it's, well, look at all the injuries. Yeah, you can see why. And I'm wearing a Super Bowl ring. But at the end of the day, ownership has that sense, you know what, it, it, these things go in cycles. And when you decide to go in that, you need that new energy. It's not that the message gets old. It's not that Andy Reid or Lovey Smith are bad coaches all of a sudden. The decisions that they made last year that were successful or the year before, they didn't just all of a sudden not make good decisions now. But sometimes an organization just needs that change. And where you see some mistakes, I think, with, with teams is it gets out of kilter. I'm not for firing anybody. Anything that keeps a head coach from getting fired, I love it. But you see teams after team, we seem to be in a stage where fire the GM, keep the coach. But then next year, you got to get the quarterback. The coach doesn't do as well, so now let's fire the coach. Well, now the GM's been there two years. He's got he's a year behind hiring his guy. And then you've got to go get the you know, the good organizations that are winning right now, you tend to look at them and see you kind of piece this together at the same time so that there's a relationship between the coach and the GM, and you go out, and the first thing you do is find that quarterback. You look at, look at Andy Reid and Jeff Fisher. They, what did they do? They came in in their first hire, and they got it right at quarterback. Donovan McNabb for Andy Reid and Steve Young, or excuse me, Steve McNair for Jeff Fisher. But they, unique to this day and age in the NFL, lasted long enough to where they now go into the second cycle. Those quarterbacks ran their, ran their, had their run. Now i got to do it again. Well, you now take a Michael Vick, wrong decision for Andy Reid. You take a Steve Young for Jeff Fisher, wrong decision. You cannot survive in this league as a coach if you miss with either a first-round draft choice at quarterback or a change at the quarterback position that you orchestrated. Now, you talked about working with, with a GM and how important that is in tandem with the head coach, and we see a couple of teams now are going to go in opposite directions. The Browns, who let Pat Shermer go, said they're going to hire a head coach before they hire their new GM. Mike Tannenbaum let go by the Jets. They're going to hire a new GM to come in and work with Rex Ryan. Does that dynamic work when it's a head coach in and it's, and it's a new GM? And- I haven't really seen it for the most part because, there again, now you're a little bit out of kilter. Um, whatever your structure is, whether it's there's got to be a chain of command. Is it the head coach? Is it the GM? Is it a partnership and you have a team president? In, in Cleveland, it's real clear cut. Joe, Joe Banner's in charge, and he's going to bring in a GM that's going to be primarily a personnel guy, and he's going to work with the head coach. So that is a good relationship, and I can see that they're trying to do this in the proper sequence. Had they kept Pat Shermer and let go of the GM, then they're trying to force a relationship. And now Joe Banner, who's going to be the ultimate authority, just under the owner. The owner's the final say. But now we're going to orchestrate two guys that will have a working relationship, and they'll be in this thing together. And that's a good thing. Uh, I'm not saying firing Pat Shermer was the right thing to do, but starting anew that way. But the chain of command is very, very clear cut. How hesitant are you as a coach to get back in when it's a situation where, okay, this coach got a year or two and that was it, and we, we blew him out, and this GM got a year or two and, and, and he was out? It could be a great job, but when you see that track record, how much does that make you think twice that, boy, you know what, am, am I going to get a couple of years? Is this going to be two years and I'm out? Is this going to be two years and my other guy is out? What, what do you do to say, okay, this job is worth the risk? It's life in the NFL, and these jobs are hard to come by, and you get a chance you – you, you cast a blind eye to the limitations of, is this really a good job? I can make it better. It's kind of like when you sign that free agent player that's had a problem. Oh, well, I'll, I'll get him over it. 
I'll coach him up. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. They're all good jobs. I always said NFL jobs are just right. If they were any better, they wouldn't be available. If they're any worse, <laughs> you wouldn't take it. But there's no job not worth taking that you don't, particularly in this NFL where, where you can change things quickly. Uh, so much of it is tied to the quarterback. The, the head coach, GM, it has to be – it's got to be a marriage. It's got to be an, an equal relationship to be at its optimum. Yeah, there are times when someone has to be in charge. Someone's got to be the, the, the lead parent, so to speak, uh, and in different situations. You don't have to have total authority when you come in as a coach, uh, but it's got to be a relationship where we have that relationship that together we can arrive at the right decision. Um, Ozzie Newsom and I had a relationship such that we knew that we could resolve whatever different disagreements we had about, a, say, a personnel. We'd, as we would say, we'd scrimmage it around. You try to convince me, I'll try to convince you. And it's not a, you don't, you don't develop, it's not a consensus, and it's not, you're simply not going to um, – because then there's no accountability. But it's either we're not just going to – you convince me or I'll convince you, but let's just don't compromise because the compromise has no father. It has no accountability. You have to have that kind of relationship. Well, let me go back to something you said a couple seconds ago about how important the quarterback is because you could see any of these head coaches, had you gotten better play from your quarterback or, or elite-level play if your quarterback was okay, they probably would have kept their job. Mike Tannenbaum still the GM of the Jets if Mark Sanchez is better. Same thing if, if suddenly Brandon Whedon comes out and he was great his first year in Cleveland. But every year, you know, it's nice to say let's go get a great quarterback, right. but there's not great quarterbacks available, available every year. And here's the problem. Here's what you're going to do this year. Because of the success of these quarterbacks that have come in, obviously RG3 and, and uh, Andrew Luck and, and now your third-round pick in Russell Wilson, so like the Tom Brady, well, let's just go get a Hall of Famer in the sixth round like mm-hmm. Tom Brady. Well, okay, that's a once-in-a-lifetime uh, gig uh, as a coach. Um, you can hear the fans now. Well, let's just get – don't waste it in the first round because there's a lot of bust there. Let's just get our Russell Wilson in the third round. Well, when you look at the need for quarterback – Need is a terrible evaluator. We saw it last year when we saw a Ryan Tannehill pulled up to the eighth pick. The year before, you saw a Christian Ponder at the twelfth pick, Blaine Gabbert at the tenth pick, um, uh, and Jake Locker at the eighth pick. Those guys should have been late first round, early second round picks. But Need drew them up, and I'm okay with that. If you think this guy is that good, doesn't matter where you take him, you take him. The problem is that your evaluations are warped by that need. And now we're going to look at whether it's the Geno Smith at West Virginia, whether it's a Matt Barkley at USC, whether it's the, the, the kid at Arkansas, Landry at Oklahoma. These guys today, and I've talked with a half dozen personnel guys that say today there's not a top 15 worthy quarterback. But come the draft, we'll take a couple. Oh, sure. Because you need it. Yeah. And, and the free agent market's not going to be big. That sequencing, that the winning formulas are to put a GM and a, a, a head coach together, create that relationship, get your quarterback, and go off and be successful. Now, if you pick the right guy, you could say, well, that's exactly what Tannenbaum and Rex Ryan did and moved up to get Mark Sanchez. Eh, wrong guy. So when you miss on a first-round draft choice, somebody has to pay. Normally it's been the head coach, but now because that – 
power or that authority has gone primarily to GMs. We're seeing the GMs now also paying the price because somebody's butt has to be in the owner's briefcase at the end of the day <laughs> when you miss on a first-round quarterback. And not only that, it's it's the right kind of quarterback because now we're seeing that rookie quarterbacks can succeed right away. We had Roethlisberger a few years ago. Those guys were few and far between. Roethlisberger was the first and probably since Dan Marino to come right in and play well at a high level. Now you're seeing the last three, four years, guys are coming in. But not only that, they're coming in as dual-threat quarterbacks. That's who colleges are starting to uh, manufacture now, the guys that run. So now it's not just having a quarterback. It's having, well, we got to have an RG3. Right. we got to have a Cam Newton. But, 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 whoa, and I hear that all the time. They're not a lot of those cats running around, man, right? And so, no, not many. And, and until that style of play wins a championship, are we in the transition into that style of play? We'll see. It looks that way, but at the end of the day, you're going to win a championship in the pocket. Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning. Now, the difference being, I think RG can win from the pocket. The fact that he can do some of the things outside is makes him special. Can Cam Newton? Not sure, but be interesting to try. So you're right. Are we, you know, the Chip Kellys of the world? Do do somebody go out and get a Chip Kelly? If you hire Chip Kelly, who's a phenomenal coach. But his style of play, and we've seen it time and time again with college coaches, whether it be Steve Spurrier, Dennis Erickson, guys that come in without the pro experience that have a certain style of play that just doesn't transition into the NFL. Chip Kelly's going to come in and do what Chip Kelly does. Are we at that point where Chip Kelly can maybe get a Tim Tebow? Let's start that conspiracy theorist. An organization says, I'm going to strike out. That's the way we're going. I'm going to hire Chip Kelly, and he, we're going to go get Tim Tebow, and we're going to change the landscape of the NFL. How about it? That'll be, that'll be an interesting experience. But that's, that's a major sea change. And are we headed that way? I don't know. Until that wins in this league, and when I say wins, I mean wins a Super Bowl, I'm not sure that we are transitioning to the degree that a lot of people that now would advocate, and I'm not saying they're wrong, you know, when you look at the alternatives, if, if I'm Joe Fan or if I'm Joe Owner and saying, well, what are my options? There's not a lot of free agent quarterbacks there for me to go get that I can really hang my hat on. The Mark Sanchez that might leave New York, the same guy they're running out now is going to be my answer. Alex Smith. Um, we just talked about the rookie quarterbacks. Are there any of those guys that are going to be my Andrew Luck or RG3? Uh, don't know. So if those are my options – and I got to start anew. Well, you know what? I'm going to try this. I'm going to I'm going to go off outside the box, and I'm going to piece this thing together, and I'm going to win a championship that way. Well, interesting. Let's have at it. Yeah, but that's not going to have a long shelf life because if it no. doesn't work right away, no. you're going to you're going to pull the, the plug on that before you would say, well, here's my approach. I need two, three years, a more traditional approach. You're, you're saying, well, this is not working. It's too outside the right. box. We're going to do it. Yeah, the run one and year. shoot. Yeah. Run and shoot was a brilliantly conceived offense, and everybody started to go that way because of the numbers it produced. But at the end of the day, you couldn't win with it. Couldn't win in the NFL. And, and then it went by way of the Wales. All right. Now, let, let me uh, talk about fan impact for a second here. Because I remember a few years ago uh, talking to Steve Phillips, former GM of the New York Mets, had been around baseball. And he said, you know, one of the things that GMs have to realize and head coaches, managers, is that 
fans have more input than they realize because if there's so much negativity and fans keep crying out for change and it goes on for so long, then a team feels they have to make that change because you have to satisfy the fan base. You don't listen to everyone, you know, someone doesn't like so-and-so, someone doesn't like so-and-so. How much of that goes into it where an owner feels, boy, my, my, the fan base is just, it, it, they're just killing everything and it, I, I got to make a change. I got to at least keep some of them happy. Organizationally, you listen to it the same way you do on game day when the fans are telling you to go for it on fourth and one on your own 20-yard line. you got to <laughs> block it out because it's, it's a mob mentality that you can't listen to. But you're absolutely right because at the end of the day, the owner is a fan. That's why he got into this. There's any number of things he might have spent that money on and get a higher return than the NFL. But they want to be in the NFL for a reason. And, and they're guys that like the NFL, that watch and listen to the NFL Network and ESPN, and all the shows, and all the commentary, and all the experts. Uh, They listen to their friends, their buddies, that are sitting there in the booth and have an opinion on the coach down on the field. Well, I heard, and I read, and I I heard this was true. Well, where did you hear it? Because you heard it on TV. That does affect those those owners. And the owners want to win. And they're in it to win. And, and, that type of negativity or that type of mentality does affect them. All right, he mentioned listening to the guys from the booth. You've already seen John Gruden, Monday Night Football analyst with ESPN. He's got a Super Bowl ring, one of the, one of the better young head coaches when he was coaching. Uh, maybe open to listening to opportunities. And, you know, coaches always listen. Sure, you're always open. Yeah, what does it take? You know, you've been in, you've been in the broadcast booth now for a while. What does it really take to say, okay, I'm going to leave this and I'm going to go back into coaching? There's a world of difference whether you're doing that with a Super Bowl ring or not because you have that ring. You can see, we talked about what does Andy Reid do. That wanting of leaving without the ring as a head coach can be pretty compelling. And I don't know if that's a strong enough desire to put you back into the head coaching position to sustain you. And if that's the reason you're coming back, I certainly understand it. Um, But the fact that you've got one gives you a broader view. But more importantly, it gives you the view of, I know what this looks like. I know what that – we talk about the relationship between you and the GM and the owner. I know what that – I had a good first marriage with Ozzie Newsom, so to speak. I know what that relationship looks like. Before I get back into another one, and I can only speak for me, not Gruden and Cower, but I believe you would find a similar vein, um, that I'm not going to get back into what I know isn't a good relationship, what I know isn't a good job. Because I've been to the top. I know what that looks like. Doesn't mean I have to have total control. But I have to know and get the sense that this is a good working relationship. Or why would I put myself back into that situation? But also, you keep you got to be asked. You know, John. John's a tremendous coach. I'm surprised John's not back in it. But we don't know who's actually asked him. His agent, Bob Lamont, does an excellent job. He really does. <laughs> because there's, it's always great. It's like Nick Saban putting it out there. You oh, know sure. why there's the flirting again with the NFL. Well, I want another c- contract increase from the University of Alabama. There's, there's, there's purposes for that. It builds the resume, so to speak. Um, I'm surprised John hasn't come back into it because he is a young man and that passion for the game. Um, don't know what John's. He's got a good gig. He seems to enjoy it. This can be an engaging business, uh, but there's got to be that fire to go back. But I think, and that, that exists. Once a coach, always a coach. But I think it has more to do with you can be a little more discerning 
in terms of what constitutes a good job. You hear assistant coaches all the time say, well, yeah, I'm interested in being a head coach if it's the right situation with the right people. And then Charles Manson could offer the job and go, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'll take that one because you're desperate to become a head coach. When you've been a head coach and you've got a Super Bowl ring, you can be a little more discerning, not only for you but for them, to recognize, you know what, I don't think – I'm the right guy for them based on what they want to do and their vision for the future of what it takes to win in this league. doesn't mean I'm wrong. They're wrong. It just means the skill set of what they're looking for, they probably ought to be looking someplace else. You just said once a coach, always a coach. But with Chan Gailey getting let go in Buffalo, you don't think he's going to take another job. Why is that? Uh, Well, first, he's not going to be offered another head job. So, you know, it has to be offered. Would he take another head job if it's offered? Yes. Is he going to get offered a head job? Of course not. There's some question whether he should have been offered this job in the first place and that he was fired from the four or five previous jobs that he had. Uh, and he's at the point in his life. And Chan Gailey is an outstanding coach, and he's a good man. But he's at the point in his life that I don't know that Chan Gailey is going to go back and coordinate in this league at this stage in his career compared to a Ken Wisenhunt or a Pat Shermer. Uh, I'm, I find it hard to believe that they would have – an opportunity to be a head coach again this early but could reestablish themselves as head coaching candidate by going back and coordinating, as you saw in Mike Nolan going back and coordinating now in Atlanta very successful. And I think Mike Nolan will be on a lot of people's list. Jack Del Rio going back and doing a good job and, and showing that he probably needs to be thought of as a head coach again in, in Denver. So um, it depends on where you are in your coaching career. And do you want to go back and go back and be that coordinator? I don't know that Andy Reid would go back and coordinate. I don't know that he wouldn't, but I don't know that he he will. Lovey Smith, don't know. I could see Lovey going back and coordinating, but sometimes when you've been a head coach long enough, do you really want to go back and do that? How tough is it to do that, to, to go from being a head coach to now, I understand this is a job that's offered, this is my way back in, but mentally you have to feel like I'm, I'm starting all over because here I am again to start over and impress and get back to where I and was. And if that's the attitude you have, you probably shouldn't do it. Some coaches will say, I'm just a ball coach, I just want to coach. And if it's as a coordinator, fine. If it's only as a position, Romeo Cornell, and he said it, and you can take Romeo at his, at his word because there's no finer man than Romeo Cornell. Uh, Romeo, I imagine we will hear, yeah, I'd like to go back and coordinate. And if you can't get a coordinator job, yeah, I'll go back and position coach. And if I can't position coach in the NFL, yeah, I'll go back and college coach. And if I can't do that, I'll go back and high. Romeo just wants to coach. <laughs> now, coaches will tell you that, but would you really? And so there are some guys that wouldn't go back to a position coach. There are some guys that I don't think would go back to the coordinator's job. Uh, some will. So if, the, if the, the ones who go back, is there from a standpoint of, all right, I have this much amount of time, to get back to being a head coach? Because we see whether you're out in the broadcast booth or whether you're not a head coach, how long can you be out and then expect, okay, I can get a phone call to get back well, in? Well, I, I don't know. When you, when you make the decision to go the broadcast route, as I and, and, and Tony Dungy and Bill Cowher did, there's a couple decided approaches. Some would say, and what happens? You get into this, and they go, well, does he really want to come back? He seems to enjoy what he's doing. I've always enjoyed what I'm doing, whatever it is I'm doing. And I do enjoy being in the broadcast booth. But let's look at the difference of the two. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong, because there will some say, well, but is he really a coach? Well, Mike Shanahan and Jeff Fisher, decidingly knowing they wanted to come back, laid out a year, got off the radar, re-energized their battery, and jumped into the coaching fray. And they both got jobs, and and rightfully so, because they're excellent coaches. Use myself as an example. 
John in the same token. A little bit different for Bill because he's doing a studio show. Let's look at what John and I do. All right, Super Bowl winning coaches that have gotten out. We now spend every Friday in jobs, John's instance, Saturday because he has the Monday night game. But for five years now, every Friday, I've sat in another facility with coaches, players, GMs, personnel people, general or, or owners. What a great – I've learned a lot in five years because the blinders are off. When you're coaching, it's about you, your team, your circumstance. But I've got to walk into the beast of the belly, so to speak, see how other people operate, gather that kind of information. Because of my obligations on the NFL Network and Fox, I look at every game in the league played from my segments on playbook, total access. I immerse myself in the two teams that I have each week. When I had Philadelphia and New York last week, I spent the whole week looking at every ounce of film on those two teams to get me ready for the broadcast and doing it without any other agenda than finding out about these teams and the personnel. I've done the draft every year. <laughs> okay. So I can't think of a better way for a coach to prepare himself to reimmerse himself back in the league. And I will tell you, John Gruden and myself will be better coaches if we chose to go back and I'm not lobbying for a job. because oh, He's yeah. lobbying for a job. No, I'm not. No, you said you have to get a phone call. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and is it going to be the right one? Well, we'll see. Um, but the experiences that a John Gruden and I have had, certainly compared to those that chose not to go into the broadcast, although it may show that singular focus he wants to come back, the cumulative experience we've had, certainly if we chose to go back, in my opinion, would make us better coaches. Is, is, the, is the coaching design that is something that is always like, like there, like dull under the skin, or does it like come and go and flare up? If, if you've you know, got a big game on Sunday and you're there Friday and the energy in the facility, how, how does it work? Absolutely. Well, once a coach, always a coach in the sense that, yeah, those juices get flowing on game day. That's what I like about what I do now. You know, I, get, I immerse myself in a team. I'm in the facility on Friday watching practice. I go to the game. And you get that, that passion of the game. And then afterwards, I get on a plane and don't give a rat's, you know what, who won or lost. <laughs> and, I'm, and could live a lot longer. I'll give you a, a shared experience with you. And it has to do with two coaches just got fired. I did the Arizona, Philadelphia at Arizona. This is where Arizona ended up being 4-0. And I think Philly was 3-1. and So they're doing well. Philly went in and lost to Arizona. And in, in, at the stadium in Arizona, I come down to the broadcast booth, and you go right by the two locker rooms. And there are good things about coaching and there are bad things about coaching. And as I walked by and I saw Andy and you saw the look on his face and you it reminded you of what losing in this league is about, you go, okay, I know why I'm not coaching right now. And then you pass to Ken Wisenhunt. He just won. I looked in Ken's eyes and I thought, I know why I'm not coaching right now. Because he had already moved on to the next game. He didn't even have the time from stepping from the sideline into the locker room to enjoy a win that he didn't have to start thinking about the next game. Now, that's what you do as a coach. And there's a, there's a challenge to that that you love. But there's also part of it that you lack and go, do I really want to get into that grind? Only if it's with the right people, with the right organization, do you want to take on that challenge? Because otherwise, why would you submit yourself to that when you know it's not going to work based on the history of the organization, ownership, the GM, the personnel they have just, you know, there's a lot of reasons for you to, if you can look at it and remove yourself, remove your ego from it and recognize this scenario is not the right one to go forward. 
So you would say that winning is more, instead of the joy, it's more of a relief? I think coaches will tell you that have been as long as, as, in it as long as I have, and you've heard it from players, the fear of losing is a much stronger motivator than the exaltation of winning. That drives you more. As a head coach, and the problem becomes the high, to hold off the highs and lows of winning and losing are in order to not get too low when you lose, you hold off the highs of winning. Now you're in that gray twilight of neither winning nor losing. That's not a good place to be in. But if you don't, then you just are devastated by the loss and the win. You can never win enough. You can never win enough. And that's a, that's a tough beast to feel to feed. So the, the coaches who were let go on Monday, we talk about Reed, Lovey Smith, Shermer. Is there a sense of relief for them from the other perspective of, okay, at least now it's over? And, and uh, my mind is a little bit uncluttered. The, the worry I have is not there. What, what's, yes. what are the emotions that are going on well, right, right now? Well, right now it's raw, and no, it doesn't feel good. There's nothing good about it. But going forward, they'll come to realize that, like we said, sometimes an organization just to move on, needs to move on because of the, the resources you have to spend and the emotional capital that you have to spend to overcome the tough times going forward when you're on the hot seat. It just makes it too big a hill to climb. Well, and I'll, for Andy Reid, I think he'll enjoy, if he chooses to go to another job, I think he will enjoy wherever it is he goes a little bit more next year than he would have coaching the Philadelphia Eagles, holding off, boy, we better, better win, or they're going to tar and feather me out of town. So he's doing the same job, and he's certainly a good coach, but wherever he, and that's what it, I'd communicate with Andy is, maybe this is a good thing for you too. So this this will hit in a couple of weeks, in in when they get well, when it, it comes a phone back. Call, to, yeah, when... it comes back to uh, yeah. That, that's the tough one because you don't have time to think about it too much, um, and 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 that can ju- cloud your judgment. So that's the tough things for those gentlemen right now. If they choose not to go back in the league, now there'll be a period of time, and it'll take a while that that detachment from it, you'll be able to exhale, take a deep breath, and size things up a little bit. It's it will feel okay. Until you get to the draft and you'll get a little anxious because you're not involved. Then you'll be okay again. And the summers are going, ooh, you know what? This isn't bad. <laughs> but then the games will start to bu- start up. Or the training camps will start up and going, this doesn't feel right. I, the, you know, it's, it's August and I'm not preparing a team. I'm not used to it. I've, I've been doing this for 35 years. This doesn't feel right. It takes a little getting used to. All right, now, as we wrap up Coach's podcast, you, you talked about the, the big thing being what does the quarterback situation look like in a potential team you're going to. You look at San Diego with Phillip Rivers, who's had a down last couple of years, but we saw his talent. Is, is San Diego the best job from that perspective? With, with that with being Rivers? the criteria, yeah. clearly, when you look at it, the ones we know right now, there's two that have existing quarterback, Phillip Rivers in San Diego and uh, Jay Cutler in Chicago. Now, some people say, well, no, you don't have a quarterback in Chicago because they don't like <laughs> Jay Cutler. But those are two proven guys that you've got to feel like, I can start with that compared to the unknowns of all these others. You don't know. Is, is, is uh, 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 Foles in, in Philadelphia, is that the answer? Is, is Whedon in, in, in uh, uh, Cleveland, is that the answer? You don't have a quarterback in Cleveland or in uh, Kansas City. You don't have a quarterback in Buffalo. Um, that uncertainty makes them less appealing simply within the criteria that we're talking about. Would you rather go into a job? Having okay, I have an established quarterback in Philip Rivers, or an established quarterback in Jay Cutler, or a guy that you like that you can work with. Or would you rather go in and say, you know what, I want to go out and get my guy? I'd, if you, you ideally you want a job that gives you as many options as possible, whether it be the veteran guy that's there, looks like there's some options of free agency, or I like the quarterback and core. 
the quarterbacking prospects in the uh, in the draft this year. You want as many options as you can. This year, at least right now, having a veteran guy like a Philip Rivers seems more attractive than the free agency options available or what this quarterbacking draft in the NFL in the, in the draft looks like. Would that also buy you more time as a head coach? Because if a coach comes in and here's a quarterback, I tried to make it work for a couple of years, it didn't. Now let me get my guy in. Suddenly you're in year three, year four, year five, and you've built up the rest of the team. Does that buy you a little bit more time? Um, let's use Jacksonville as an example. It didn't buy G. Smith time. Someone, Like I said, someone's got to pay for missing on a quarterback. Blaine Gabbard isn't being blamed on Mike Malarkey. It was blamed on Gene Smith. Great, we can move forward. But now Mike Malarkey has to make a decision, and he either owns that and owns that with Blaine Gabbert, or he makes a change, he gets somebody else, and now he'll have to own that. All right, great sitting in for Coach Dennis Green, Coach Brian Billick. Great stuff, as always. Don't forget, check out Daniel Jeremiah and Albert Breer's articles on NFL.com about future head coaching candidates around the league. Jason Smith for Brian Billick. Dennis Green, coach, is back next week. Have a good one.